This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. It's a special edition. Mm -hmm. Carol, what a week here in New York City. It was the Bloomberg 50, the big event, finance to fashion, technology to trade, the people who, according to Bloomberg Business Week, and we can measure it, Yes, they define 2019. And it was so cool because we were actually, Monday, it was a big dinner, big celebration of those folks that are featured in the Bloomberg 50 list and in the magazine. We were live on the red carpet at the Morgan Library and Museum in Manhattan. It was the third annual Bloomberg 50, and it really was a celebration. And what I loved in terms of the conversations of the evening, it was people from all walks of life, and it was just this great representation of our world and truly from around the globe. Well, and coming up in this special edition, we're going to hear from some of those folks we caught up with on the red carpet, the Gimlet Media co-founders, Matt Lieber and mm-hmm. Alex Bloomberg. I've got a little bit of like a bro pro a crush on them. It's I a love podcasts. Plus, we will hear my conversation with Joey Levin, the CEO over at IAC. I got to catch up with him before the event, get his view of what's going on in the world of media. First up, though, we caught up with Joel Weber. He's the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, of course. He told us how the Bloomberg 50 issue gets put together. There's a guy named Brett Began who actually slaves away at this thing for weeks after week after week to get get to a point where we can actually have people that we can celebrate. So it's big team sport, and it's even bigger than Brett because we reach out throughout the newsroom to all of the 2,700 journalists and analysts within Bloomberg to make sure that we can have a list that actually really represents sort of the zeitgeist of the year. What's really cool, too, is you guys start early in the year, right? From what I understand, like back in the spring. Yeah, well, I mean, and we try and count for the whole year. So it's really a chance to recognize even things that happen in January and February we're kind of taking into account. And so when you sort of set this in motion in a year like this, how do you pick out the themes? I mean, how do you sort of break it down? So you, it's a it's a evolving process, yeah. um, and it goes up until the last minute, right? But things start to stand out over the course of the year, whether it's a deal that, um, especially in the oil M&A was one that really jumped out at us this year, like yeah. that, that, that kind of distinguishes stuff. And then you kind of like give it a little time, and you come back to it and say, did that thing hold up, or was it an anomaly? Right. Or did something else happen that got bigger than that, right? Or was it just like you know we we have we have a lot of people on the list. We also have a chicken sandwich, yeah. <laughs> and it broke. You know, this is a Popeyes chicken sandwich that broke the internet. Is yeah. what what we realized. They had a three month supply run out in a matter of days. It's crazy. And you know, like something like that. It's just like even if you're like business executive who dreams this up, you have no idea that it's going to like take off quite like that, right? right? And so we build into the process that there's opportunities to just embrace things that are slightly outside of our our usual place. And I love folks like Kylie Jenner, right, who are on the list for a couple of things that they did. A couple things and, you know, that's it's it's a big money, the self-made billionaire, Gen Z's first billionaire. Um, It's... It's an amazing accomplishment, and that's why we do this, be able to recognize some of these people. All right, it's going to be very exciting. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, thank you so much. Thank you. Great. Right. We want to talk about the cannabis industry, right. which was a big story in 2018, no doubt about it. But there was a lot more focus, I felt like, on some of the Canadian cannabis companies. And now we're really focusing a lot more on the U.S. company because our next guest is from Cureleaf, and he turned this into one of the world's most valuable cannabis companies. It's the biggest U.S. marijuana company by market value. We're talking about $2.8 billion. Right. He is Boris Jordan. Congratulations on Thank the Bloomberg you. 50. It seems like just a few weeks ago you were with us uh, in studio. It's great to catch up. I know. You. This is Good a much nicer venue. I mean, our studio is nice, but <laughs> this is a lot nicer. We generally don't serve booze, but, you know, here well, we are. So why do you think you made this list? You know, I was surprised. Yeah. I'll be very honest with you. I've... Uh, in the past, made some lists. Uh, I, I opened up the Russian uh, privatization market, and uh, I was on this Global Leaders of Tomorrow. But the last thing I thought I'd make is a cannabis uh, company listing a Bloomberg 50 for cannabis. Um, I think what's great about it is that it, it, it sort of reflects the fact that people are starting to accept the fact that cannabis is going to be a part of our lives in the United States. We have 33 states that are that that have legalized cannabis in one form or another. Uh, more and more people are using it, and the fact that Bloomberg has recognized that, I think, is a big deal, and it shows that it's becoming mainstream. 
Well, Boris, and I do think about, you know, for a while we just talked about the Canadian cannabis companies, and I do feel like 2019 was a lot more about the U.S. companies and yours included. Um, what do you think 2020 is going to be when it comes to the cannabis story? We, we are waiting for, you know, regulations to come out from the government, you know, so I'm just curious what you think. I, I, th I think it's going to be a continuation of the U.S. story, and that's not to say anything negative about Canada, but it's just a bigger market. The U.S. companies are all turning profitable. Um, you're starting to see more and more of them. I think the numbers that are going to be put up by U.S. companies next year are going to be quite big and staggering. And I think that will get recognized not only uh, you know, by Washington, but I think also by the markets at large. And right. I think you know, large, the mainstream investors have largely avoided right. uh, cannabis until this to, to today. And I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of them get involved as they see these companies start to put up significant numbers. Well, and talk to us about sort of the big companies getting involved because there have been some twists and turns, shall we say, with some of the bigger U.S. companies sort of dipping their toe in, some making some investments. I'm thinking of Constellation, obviously. Uh, how does the sort of consumer packaged goods market get more involved in this? How important is it that they get involved in order to grow this business in a meaningful way? I think they're all going to get involved. For instance, Cureleaf on Bloomberg announced that we, we hired um, uh, Joe Byron, who ran uh, uh, Dr. Pepler uh, Snapple. He built uh, Voss Water. Before that, he was uh, at uh, um, uh, Seagram's company. So He's a real guy. These are guys that are built and run very big CPG businesses that understand brands and understand supply chain. And you're starting to see more and more of those people enter this market. And I think that's the first sign. And that's Cura Leaf Chairman Boris Jordan. We've been hanging out with that guy a lot yes. lately. He's so influential right now because, as you have said a number of times, cannabis, it was the story of 2018, 2019, and it's going to be the story of 2020 in many ways, too. Well, and they made a bunch of acquisitions in 2019 that's really changed their company, made them such a, a bigger player in the industry. There's still a few hurdles, which he got into, but he sounds like 2020 could be a big year for this industry. Jason, it was a big week, and we did kick off the week on Monday, celebrating the Bloomberg 50, uh, the folks in the magazine, these individuals who stand out in measurable ways. And there was a dinner, a celebration, and we got to do a red carpet. The red carpet, obviously, was the thing. We were perched right there, grabbing guests as they came in. They're stopping to get their photo taken. And then sitting down with us, they all looked really great. So fashion, mm -hmm. uh, clearly front of mind. Yes, we did talk fashion with Ankiti Bose. She's the CEO of Zalingo. And and this is a startup. It's now got about a billion dollar valuation, but it's all about the supply chain and retail, man. Talk about disruption. She's doing it. And this is a story we've been talking about mm -hmm. in some form or, wait for it, fashion, <laughs> all year done. long. You think back to Dana Thomas's fantastic book, Fashionopolis, about the fast fashion world the effects that it's had on the environment and on labor, that is really very much at the heart of what Ankiti is doing. We started by asking her to tell us a little bit about Zalingo. So, uh, you know, everybody wears clothes. And uh, um, the apparel industry, uh, the apparel and textile industry is almost 5% of global GDP. So it's huge. Yeah. Uh, but despite that, very little digitization, very little technology has really touched the entire industry. Which is remarkable. Which is, which is remarkable. Exactly. So unlike pharmaceuticals, industrials, uh, the way your iPhone is made, unlike any of that, uh, there is very little traceability, um, sustainability, technology, or really any amount of transparency in the supply chain in apparel. And that leads to all these problems that you hear of and that fashion is accused of, which are all true, by the way, that we're filling up the landfills. There right. may be little children working in factories in Vietnam or in Indonesia or in Bangladesh making clothes for you uh, that you're buying here, um, or that uh, the clothes are not sustainable, people are buying too much, all of that is true. And all of that can be solved with technology by creating a lot of transparency across the supply chain. So that's where we come in. We, we provide a technology platform for mills, factories, uh, literally as upstream as the farmers to interact with the brands mm -hmm. that want products made by these people and make sure that it's done in a sustainable, transparent Love way. Love that part of it. I have to think that lack of transparency, though, existed for a reason. People yes. didn't want, uh, you don't know, how hard was it to sort of crack into this? So you're exactly right. Today, the fashion supply chain has about 20 players, uh, and you only need five of them, which means that about 14 or 15 of those guys or girls are just there because they're, they're all agents. <laughs> Most of them are guys. Yeah, exactly. They're agents, they're traders, they're not adding a lot of value in the value chain. So they're really either hoarding inventory That's or they're amazing. money lenders. So I, I, sorry, I just want to go back actually. to that. So it's like there, there are 20 and there need yeah. to be five. Yeah. Incredible. Exactly. Yeah. 
So about 15 of them don't like us a lot, but the five that are adding value, we're adding an immense amount of value to their business yeah. and just economics and then making sure that they are uh, held accountable if they're not following the right practices. But to Jason's point, like how tough was it like making your inroads and so on and so forth? Because I feel like it's such an established yeah. supply chain or supply you know, that was out there. How tough was it to do this? Actually, once you go beyond the big manufacturers and you really go into the world of Asian manufacturing or uh, South American manufacturing or even right here in the U.S., it's quite fragmented. Huh. So, uh, you know, most of fast fashion is made within a very fragmented manufacturer base. And then once you start giving them technology and bringing them online, it becomes much more easy for them to find their suppliers and their buyers and, you know, transact without agents in the middle. Right. So uh, it's it's maybe it's hard in the beginning to get a critical mass in a new uh, country or in, in a new area or in a new, in you know, subcategory like denims or, or something. But once you do it, there is so much of a network effect uh, that it spreads quite fast because businesses see the value very quickly. I wonder about the trade war, specifically the U.S.-China trade war and what that has done for your business. So uh, what's interesting is that I think uh, there has been definitely a lot of volatility uh, or at least the fear of what might happen in the minds of brands the world over and many of whom that sourced uh, a majority of their products from China, today want to diversify that portfolio a lot. So they want us to, uh, you know, they're not saying no China. They're saying, hey, can you de-risk my business by helping me understand how I should source and from where and making that transparent along the way. We're hearing that from a lot of the CEOs we talk about that they want to be having kind of manufacturing in the markets that they sell. They want to, as you said, deleverage that risk. Exactly. Yeah, some optionality. Yeah, obviously. absolutely. Um, so as you build your business, where are you now? Fresh infusion of capital. You're growing like mm-hmm. crazy. Yes. What does 2020 look like? Uh, I think 2020 is going to be super exciting for us. We uh, recently launched in the United States. Uh, we've started working with brands uh, over here. We're now just recently started working with manufacturers in the U.S. as well. Huh. Um, so it's it's uh, looking like uh, 2020 is going to be very very busy because we do have a business in eight countries in Asia as well. Right. <laughs> and uh, while I spend most of my time between Singapore and New York, now we have an office in LA, uh, and we have lots of customers there. So it looks like it's going to be a crazy exciting year. Thank you. What, what were you well, Go I was ahead. just going to say it is interesting, sort of this idea of a man, American manufacturing. LA does seem to be mm-hmm. a little bit of the center of that, yes. and yet even the American manufacturing is not immune to some of the issues that we've run into overseas. Exactly. So, in fact, uh, uh, it's a myth that uh, those problems don't exist in the U.S. as well. Um, Maybe uh, maybe the practices are better, but they're not exactly optimized. Uh, We can use a lot more technology here as well. We can use a lot more transparency, digitization, uh, you know, QC and line efficiency tools can be automated. Uh, So, there's a lot that can be done and uh, it was a bit of a surprise to me personally when I came in and saw that there was just there was just so much to be done even domestically here in the US but now it seems in like a very exciting world, right? in the developed world right yeah. yeah. I have to ask you cuz I love talking to folks like you because I feel like you're traveling the world you're seeing smaller business mid-sized businesses all kinds of businesses what's the global economy look like I think uh, you know despite uh, despite every fear that people have uh, in their minds right now about where the economy is are going, where the economy is going. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity in the adversities that we're seeing as well. So, of course, this is a very colored view from my viewpoint where, you know, um, on the one hand, we're saying uh, we've hit peak apparel and really people should be consuming less and uh, consuming better. All of that seems like such a huge opportunity to us uh, because consumers are starting to ask questions and hold brands and businesses responsible. The conversations we've had. Um, Which is exactly where we come in and say to the brand that, listen, you don't know how to do this. That's okay because, you know, we're going to help you. We're going to help you. (laughs) That's Alingo CEO Ankiti Bose. And Jason, I feel like our conversation with her about the supply chain when it comes to retail and the fashion industry, this is something we've been really tackling a lot in our daily radio show. Well, and it'll be fascinating to see where this company goes, because as she pointed out, this is a supply chain that is actually too long and really needs to be shrunk down. You have to think that is not an easy task. 
So, Carol, it was a rainy night in New York. I feel like I'm setting up a novel here, but we were there <laughs> yes. at the Morgan Library uh, on the red carpet. And despite the bad weather outside, people were pouring in, really excited to be there because it was just buzzing with big ideas, innovation. And it wasn't just about the people who were accomplished in 2019. There was a bit of a look ahead to 2020. Yeah, and that's important. I mean, it's innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders who have changed the global business landscape. And as we said, it's measurable ways. But we didn't only just think about 2019. We did think also about 2020. And one of those individuals, one of those that we're going to be watching for 2020, is Seema Hingarani. She's the founder of Girls Who Invest. This is about getting more women to be managing money in the future. Well, and she knows what she's talking about. She mm-hmm. was the CIO for New York City's pension plan. She's now shifted to the not-for-profit world to really change not just the pipeline, but the decision makers and really adding some diversity to the mix. Yeah, it's been fantastic. In four years, we've put through 350 college women through our 10-week on-campus summer program, where that's four weeks of training in the classroom and then a six-week paid internship at one of the leading asset manager firms in the world. It's been incredible, and 80% of those women are staying in the investment business. They're staying. Are they moving up the ladder? They are. That's it's great. fantastic. Well, and Seema, one of the things that I, I love talking to you about is the fact you were on the other side of the table. You were you were distributing money in some ways. You were picking a manager, so you saw that from the other side of the table. Why has it taken so long for the rest of the world to sort of get on board with this? I think it's just coming up and, and saying, you know, maybe we ought to rethink this. Yeah. We've been having trouble recruiting women in particular into our business, uh, and yet we do the same thing over and over again. So when I talk to a lot of the large investment firms around the world, I would ask them, so what do you do when you recruit? And they would say to me, oh, we go to these four colleges and we go to these investment banking programs. And I thought, well, you guys, no wonder we're having a problem with diversity. Right. Let's go bigger, broader. And so fine, I'll do the work. I'll go find women across the entire country from colleges all across the U.S. with different majors of study, different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and I'll run a program through the summer and we'll train them up so that when we send them to you for these internships, they hit the ground running. Seema, I do wonder though if there's something different because I feel like there's been a lot of talk for years about getting more women into kind of the financial industry. Is there something that's changed in the last couple of years? Is it finally understanding that the studies and the importance of diversification, that it makes a difference in terms of financial difference, that all of a sudden everybody's awakened? Yes, I think that's right. I think um, while the research has been out there, there's more research that shows and proves that more gender diverse teams get better outcomes. There's actually research now that shows that more mixed gender investment teams get better investment results, which goes to the heart of Girls Who Invest and what we're trying to do. And I think honestly in this country now with movements such as Time's Up and Hashtag Me Too, it's certainly raised uh, you know, more attention on this issue and more firms are paying attention. And I think the final push has really come from the big institutional investors. Yeah. So you now have big public pension plans in mm-hmm. particular saying to these investment managers, you know, if you don't have more diversity on your investment team, I've read the research too and I believe the research. I don't believe you will get long-term consistent investment returns. So I might pull my money from you and put it across the street. Huge. I'm so glad you brought that up because mm-hmm. it feels like that's what has to happen. And again, going back to uh, your time in New York City, like the money has to speak here. Like the that nothing's going to change. I mean, we talk about this with ESG as well. You know, until startups. the source of the yeah. money essentially says no or change nothing's going to happen. So you think that that is starting to happen? Yes. And certainly it's a combination. I mean, there are amazing leaders in our industry who do get it and have been trying to push. Yeah. To get it as broad-based as we need it to get, yes, we're going to have to have the big investors out there saying, this isn't going to work and standing up and actually pulling their capital and putting it elsewhere. So much of what you're doing is creating that pipeline. And I do think that's so important, but we got to make sure that there's the support along the way. And that really speaks to a company's culture and making sure that there's those folks to do that. So how do we get to that? Yes. (laughs) Is it just by getting more and more women into the industry or what? Well, so that's part of it. Um, You know, back when I was at the city of New York and I was the CIO and I had these conversations with the leaders of the business. Yeah. Um, And I'd look down at their organizational charts and say, you guys, where are all the women on your investment team? 
And so what they would say to me is, well, we don't get resumes from women. So clearly a pipeline issue, which I agreed. Maybe we do have that and let's fix that. But I did say to them then, you know, I'd like to have the other part of the conversation. No judging, no blaming, but there's still firms out there in our business that have cultures that are not so welcoming to women. So let's have that conversation too and tackle it from both ends, make a lot more progress a lot faster. So what I'm really encouraged by now is we are sitting down with the leadership of the industry and and talking about their cultures. And why is it that once these women come in, they don't stay? And how do we help get these women to a position where they're getting promoted for these new opportunities, new growth opportunities, that right now they're not really getting put in those positions. And that's Seema Hingarani, the founder of Girls Who Invest. So there on the red carpet, Carol Masser, earlier this week in New York City, we grabbed a couple guys whose voices, candidly, very familiar to us and a story I followed very closely. You know I love podcasts. I'm always coming into the office saying, you got to listen to this, you got to listen to that. Most of the time, you don't, but sometimes you do. I do sometimes listen. And you have to listen to these two individuals because they sold their company to Spotify for hundreds of millions of dollars. It was the largest deal in the podcasting industry. We're talking about Gimlet Media co-founders Matt Lieber and Alex Bloomberg. So, Carol, we asked them to start by telling us a little bit about the podcast world. I mean, it's nascent. It hasn't been around for that long. Their origins Mm -hmm. in public radio and how they stand out from the pack. Well, I, I think Matt and I were, we started the company in 2014, uh, and and uh, we were both sort of coming at it from separate uh, perspectives. I was uh, I was working in podcasting already. I worked at This American Life, and I had uh, started uh, Planet Money with my co-founder, Adam, uh, Adam Davidson. Right. And so I was seeing sort of like this excitement building around this new on-demand way that like audio was getting delivered to people, and I just saw the excitement building, and I was like, we just, somebody should make more of these. And then Matt had a, was like, in the, on the other side of the sort of like uh, of the of the of the scene, looking and seeing the same sort of thing. Is he that was, true, uh, Matt? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think our insight was that if you look over the whole history of media, every time a new medium comes about, new a new media company gets built. Yeah. And so a hundred years ago, the new medium was radio, and that's when CBS got built, and that's when NBC got built, and we felt on-demand digital audio podcasts were a new medium. And we wanted to build the defining brand for this new medium, and that was Gimlet. But isn't it fascinating because it is like radio in terms of, you know, just listening to a great story being told. And I just think the simple part, it's just such a simple thing, but it's great, but it harkens back to radio, well, right? It harkens even further back than that. I mean, I think what, if you think about, like, what we're doing in podcasts, a lot of times what we're doing is, the, is, is one of the oldest forms of media in human existence is telling stories to yeah. one another. Right, right. And we've been telling stories to one another before there was any other media available. We, like, many of the oldest stories in, in human history were oral stories before they were ever written down. They were, they were telling them before human language was even, written language was invented. And so it's very deep and very primal. And, uh, and I think that was one of the issues when we were sort of like first starting this company. Everyone was like, but it's just talking, right? And we we're yeah. like, no, no, no. But it's also on the backs of this new, of, of new technology and, and all these new tools that we bring to it. And so where are we sort of in, in the evolution here? Because you guys, as we said, were early. A lot of people have sort of piled in. It feels like, I mean, we have a podcast. Everybody has, a, like, you know, everybody standing around us probably uh, has a podcast. Like, where, where does it go next, Matt? We think we're just at the very beginning. And the, the, the term that um, I think you, you, you've been using is, that we're at the dawn of the second golden age of audio. The first golden age of audio was in the 1930s and 1940s. It was when broadcast news was born. It was when you saw fiction, like The Shadow with Orson Welles come about. And now, and you know, audio hasn't evolved that much in the last 60, 70 years until now. And now what you have are a couple of big technology changes. So you have smartphones in every pocket. You have connected cars coming online. A lot of listening happens in the cars. And you've got smart home devices that people are listening at home and even talking to their dashboard when they're in their car. And so all these things have combined for this whole new um, listening kinds of listening experiences to come out and new sorts of storytelling. So there's a whole generation of creators being born now to work for this medium. It's a more intimate, it's like radio, but it's yeah. more intimate. Right. Um, there is something about putting on your headphones or something and yeah. just kind of going yeah, into your own world. Yeah, when you listen to a podcast, it feels like you're 
listening to your best friend hang out with you, tell you a story that's just made for you. Yeah. But as Jason, well, as you mentioned, everybody's got a podcast. What is it that makes a podcast stand out? Well, because uh, there's mean, so much content out there. Yeah, I mean, if we told you that, then you would just start your own. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we're not going to reveal yeah. our secrets yeah. here. Uh, is it no, just a I, great story? I mean, you're asking the question that is at the heart of every content company, which is like, yeah. what do people want? Yeah, right. And uh, and 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 the, the the scary truth is that like that is an essential mystery. We can do our best, and we have been very successful so far, and we will continue to be successful. At, like, eventually, you know, getting that right a bunch of times, but it's like it's it's really hard i think the thing that like is true about uh audio though is that it prizes two things above everything else like there's a very simple way that it is uh just it, it, it thrives on narrative and so if you can just tell a simple story like just for example if i say to you i got up this morning i looked out the window and then i stopped you're like, well, wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all I did was say two sentences to you, right. and all of a sudden you want to listen to the third one. There's something, that, there's something that deep in in terms of like hearing a story that people it really grips you. So that's I think that is one of the key things that audio can deliver. And if you get that right over time, right, that's what people want to listen to. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the business side of all of this because storytelling is great. We all love telling stories. <laughs> we like listening to them. We like telling them. We certainly like uh, hearing ourselves talk because we do it for hours a day, every day. But you guys figured out a way to make a real business uh, out of this, something that Spotify was able to and willing to pay you a lot of money for. Clearly, they see a business here. How does distribution ultimately work in a profitable way? Matt? Um, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. We um, we did build a business here, and so Sp Gimlet is um, it was mainly an advertising business. It turns out podcasting, this intimacy that happens in audio, makes it great for storytelling. It also makes it great for advertising, and we're reaching a very unique consumer. They tend to be younger, more affluent, more educated, and they're very hard to reach. Our name for them is the Unreachables, and we're getting them with this very um, direct personal kind of ad product that really worked for us. And so, so we built a business around that. Um, and then about a year ago, we, we started having more serious conversations with Spotify. And in Spotify, we saw a really a global giant um, music company that, you know, today reaches over a quarter billion listeners around the world every month. Um, and in that, we saw distribution. We yeah. saw the opportunity to take Gimlet and reach a global audience. We thought that together we could solve what is one of the fundamental problems for the medium and also for the business, which is discovery. So if you ask, um, if you ask people uh, what podcast they listen to and how they found out, they're still basically finding out because their friend told them. Right. They may have read it in media, but the kind of discovery that Spotify has unlocked to tell you about the right song, the right album, the right playlist, we thought that could work for podcasts too. And in doing so, get to many, many more people. Does it continue to be an advertising model that gets it to profitability? Today, podcasts are mainly an, an, uh, uh, an advertising business. Does it continue to be that way? Um, I in think the there's going to be. I think yeah. there's going to be other all, all kinds of other forms yeah. of monetization. And Spotify is primarily a subscription business. Right. So the vast majority of Spotify's revenue comes in the form of paying subscribers. And um, we think we're going to unlock new monetization models for for podcasts that will realize the true value of the medium. All right, so I have to ask you, knowing your story, knowing that you both worked in public radio, like public radio <laughs> people who you know must be, like, they're happy-ish for you, right? <laughs> I mean, in the sense that, like, happy for they, they, like, slave away, like, here they are, they're like, and, like, you guys go and create this, like, juggernaut. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> I, so I think, I think it was, like, a pretty big, uh, a pretty big shock in the industry when the sale happened, I think just because like, you know, it was like, it made real this thing that up until that point had not, had just been sort of theoretical. Yeah. And so anytime, anytime even if people were, I think, you know, we know lots of people in the industry. Many of my closest friends are in public radio, uh, and and I'm still very very tight with everybody. And so everybody knew what was happening. They were excited. They were rooting for us. Yeah, yeah, right. I think mostly. Uh, but it's like, yeah, it's a big shock when that when that thing happens, and it's like, and you're like, wow, there they were is like, Alex, this Matt, thing. why did you like cut me in yeah. a little bit? <laughs> no, they're just making sure you're <laughs> buying drink. Right? Yes. But the thing that I think it was, um, I think it was like what was gratifying, I think, for all of us in there is that it really we were slaving way doing this thing that we saw value in like we believed in this like 
product that we were making. Right. And what the sale did was it legitimized that yeah. value that we saw in it for everybody. And I think that's a great thing for the entire it's industry. It's a huge thing. I mean, yeah. I, it was a, I mean, I think when we look back huge. on it, and one of the reasons you're on the Bloomberg 50 is it was a seminal moment, you know, in, in a lot of ways of saying, because I think a lot of people who had dabbled in this were like, yeah, you know, I sold an ad to whoever and uh-huh. like it's barely covering my costs. Like this is something that, that really legitimized it in, in a really big way. Yeah. So what's 2020 for podcasts and for you guys? 2020 is just blowing up even more. Like it's just like, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see lots and lots of new forms, lots and lots of new formats, lots of new people coming into, into podcasting that haven't been here before. Um, more bigger, better, more creative, more exciting stuff, more stuff that we haven't imagined. Do the elections kind of make it an interesting year in terms of content? Yeah, I mean... Do you guys think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, we're storytellers, and this is the right. biggest story out there. <laughs> the biggest story ever. <laughs> so, yes. so kind of exciting. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's super exciting. And and, and the way and how, how you cover that... You know, in all the different ways that we're thinking about covering it, we're excited. That's Matt Lieber and Alex Bloomberg, the co-founders of Gimlet Media. And speaking of visionaries, first up, we caught up with Stephanie Kelton. She's an economist from Stony Brook University. She's got a new book coming out, I should point out, The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. That comes out in June of 2020. But we caught up to talk to her about MMT. Well, and we started by saying... Why are people talking mm-hmm. so much about this year? MMT certainly having a moment. It is kind of astonishing, right? That I think in a lot of ways what's happening is that people are coming to some sort of terms with the idea that when the next downturn comes, um, policymakers aren't going to be able to reach for the usual toolkit right. and do what they've done in the past, that we're going to have to start thinking maybe more creatively, more ambitiously about what policymakers can do do in response to a, a growing weakness in the economy. And I think um, for many people, MMT is just increasingly viewed as that alternative that can help us to um, you know, think about ways to, to be more ambitious when, so we don't have to I suffer the kind of long, protracted recession that we had right. last time. Right. And so, Stephanie, were you surprised that this was a year where a lot of people from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Bernie Sanders, who Carol mentioned, you know, they introduced it. We talk about the Overton window all the time, right? You know, that this sort of moved in MMT's favor. I love when you say Overton window. It makes me so proud. I love the idea of moving windows, Yeah, exactly, right. Flying off hinges. Um, But it was a moment, you know, and obviously it entered into the political and, and I dare say even at least the mainstream business zeitgeist, to quote our colleague Tom Keene. Were you surprised? Yes and no. If you've been pushing hard to get that breakthrough moment for a set of ideas and you've really worked as a scholar and as an academic and with a number of other people as well. I mean, this is a team effort and, you know, we put heart and soul into this project for more than two decades now. And so at some point you do expect it to pay (laughs) off, I I guess, you know, but then when you have that moment and you have politicians of the type that you're talking about giving some oxygen to these ideas, it really is remarkable. For everyone like a Bernie Sanders and some other individuals, high profile, who are supporting him and you know, you've had a lot of high profile names. I know Paul Krugman, you've had a little bit of uh, about, you know, certainly a war of words. I'm curious if you're having more and more conversations with more folks that maybe were against it that are starting to say, hey, you've got an idea here. Yeah, I mean, so for me, some of the most fun conversations and communications I have are those that aren't public. It's the people who reach out to me privately and, you know, were it known who these people are, I think the shockwaves would reverberate (laughs) in in a much more dramatic fashion. But it's just encouraging to know that there are people who are really out there willing to take the scholarship seriously, ask questions when they're not sure, um, you know, do the ideas justice and not sort of caricature them and and create an, an atmosphere of fear and concern where these are really just, I think, very sensible and sound economic principles. Remind our world, I mean, I know our audience knows, but MMT is essentially a government in their own currency can just print the money they need, correct? Well, so I never use those words because <laughs> it's okay. I, everybody everybody so, in so, the journalist world does. But the idea is fairly simple. It's that in countries like the U.S. that issue their own currency that's not tethered to gold or convertible into anything else, that the the rules are just different 
for a currency issuing government as opposed to, you know, somebody in the Eurozone, Greece right. or Italy or Spain that now borrows in a currency that they don't control. Certainly different from a household or an individual business that has to spend in a currency that it can't issue. So it does free up some policy space and what MMT is trying to remind us is we're not on a gold standard anymore. Right. We're not in a fixed exchange rate world. So let's recognize that and let's try to take full advantage of the policy space that's available to us. It's not a free lunch. It's not a carte blanche. You can go out and spend. You can't on, be on every, Yeah, still. you can't. You're still supposed to make wise investments, be judicious with the public purse, but recognize there is a difference between the issuer of the currency and what we would say are the users of currency. The government's not like a household, but we continue to have debates and policy mm -hmm. conversations that are rooted in this old thinking of the federal government as if it's got to play by the same set of rules that you and I have to play by and that's just not right. So I gotta ask you before we let you go, sort of looking ahead a bit, all the attention that's been paid to you and to, and to MMT, do you feel like there is a wellspring of sorts of new scholarship that's coming up? Are you hearing sort of students, grad students and others sort of coalesce around this a little bit because often that's what it takes for an idea to move even further into the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I taught at the University of Missouri in Kansas City for 17 years. I'm now at Stony Brook yeah. University here on Long Island, but we had one of the largest graduate programs, PhD programs in the entire uh, university. Right. There are universities training students. Our students are now out chairing their own economics departments. I just saw a university on the East Coast advertising for a faculty position where they say what we're looking for is someone who can teach MMT. No uh, way. So they're actually hiring. That must be such that. a yeah, problem. Yeah, it, is. it you, absolutely right? is. And that's economist Stephanie Kelton. And if there's such a thing as a rock star in the world of economists, she is certainly one. It was so interesting to see her work the room because people recognize her. Totally. They certainly recognize her work. They recognize her from her Twitter account, her little uh, imbroglio, as it were, with Paul Krugman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this so much attention. Don't forget, you know, she has been an advisor to Democrats on the Senate Budget Committee. She's also been an advisor to Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns. You know, everybody's talking about this because maybe the world is a little bit different. So the Bloomberg 50 this week, Carol, we kicked off the week with a bang, to say the least. A dinner, a celebration, drinks, also our favorite part, the red carpet, because we were able to grab and chat with some of the honorees. That's right, Jason. And one of them that we spoke with, James Mwangi, he's the CEO of Equity Group Holdings. We asked him after 35 years in the industry, how tough was it getting started? Yeah, the first 10 years were very difficult, couldn't break even, so we became technically insolvent uh, by the seventh year. Not good, yeah. Not, that's a tough track, right? For very that. tough track record where um, the losses we had accumulated were 30 times the capital we started with. But essentially, we developed a business model that was appropriate uh, for the individual entrepreneur. And we became a bank for the small micro and medium enterprises. And essentially, uh, the model resonated with uh, uh, the entrepreneur so well that uh, now we are the largest bank in Nairobi Stock Exchange in terms of market cap and the largest bank in Eastern and Central Africa and with 16 million customers 16 million. and nine countries. And so when you think about your customer, help us understand who they are. You, you, know, you describe their size, but are they in all types of businesses? And as you look down, down the list, what are the fastest growing areas that you see? Yeah, we are a very inclusive bank because uh, people graduate up. They may start okay. very micro, they become small, they become medium, they become a large enterprise. The same with individuals. They start uh, occasionally as peasant farmers, they become agro businesses, and the individual's well-being continues to grow. But the biggest growing segment uh, is the medium enterprises. Okay. That's where you find the scale, size is becoming really uh, significant. I have to say, James, what I love about this, and I remember talking to Bahamut Yunus about microloans and what you could do with a small amount of money, the impact you could have on a family. And I think about what you're doing, multiply it many times over, that allows people to have a financial identity, create a means for themselves and their family, and then even kind of work up the value chain. It's pretty remarkable. And it impacts the country that they're in as well. That's true, because the African... Um, 
entrepreneurship uh, or capitalism in Africa is at the individual level, yeah. the entrepreneur level. Right. And that individual supports uh, the immediate family and sometimes the extended family. So when they start the small enterprise, they provide the jobs for the entire family. They take uh, care of the education of the entire family. And essentially, it, they become a catalyst. So small loans have very significant impact because of uh, the individual capitalism. Africa is not corporatized. Right. So we don't have huge corporate. It's the small businesses that, uh, that aggregate to the African economies. So speaking of the African economies, let's talk about Kenya because an ambitious plan underway, mm -hmm. you're an architect of it. Kenya, uh, Kenya's Vision 2030, uh, I believe it's called Vision 2030. Uh, tell us what's underneath that because the ambition is huge. Uh, Vision 2030 is a long-term strategic plan uh, to, to see Kenya transformed from a least developed uh, country to a middle-income economy. I've been the chairman of uh, Vision 2030 now for the last uh, 13 years. Right. And we have seen the economy move from a 10 billion US dollar uh, size economy to a hundred billion dollars, growing 10 times uh, within a period of 13 years. In the process, we have created numerous jobs, thousands of jobs for young people, because the country is very young with a mean age of 18 years. So the need for jobs is enormous. But more importantly, we have seen the law the private sector uh, have played. And that is where equity have played a very significant role uh, in providing credit, uh, financial or support. But more importantly, the foundation provides ca uh, capacity building. We do financial literacy, we do entrepreneurship mm -hmm. tra training. And so once you combine credit and competence and capacity, we see the economy being moved. And in the process, Kenya has be, uh, have moved now to position five in the, the continent from position 16 That's within remarkable. that period. What was interesting, because you started this, I think, around 2008, which I think was an interesting time, obviously, around the world, a tough time. But it's fascinating kind of some of the things that you've done, like a, a fiber optic cable project. But you also had to deal with governance and rule of law. I mean, you had to get some basic things in place to be able to grow this, right, and, 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 and kind of grow the businesses. Yes, we broke the, uh, the aspiration of the people into three. The first one was governance. Get it light in the way we are governed and uh, law, as a people. Right? Yeah. And uh, get transparency, get accountability, and get a structure of governance that is reliable and predictable. The second one was look at the economy and enable the private sector. Invest in uh, fiber optic, invest in loads, power, railways, airports, and ports. So right. that uh, the cost of doing business... Uh, is reduced and private sector is facilitated. We called all that enablement uh, of the private sector. So massive investment in... Uh, and then the last one was invest in the social uh, aspects of the people. Mm. Focus on education. We started with free primary education that now it's free uh, day school education and on all the way to university. And we now have 100% um, transition from primary to secondary education. So you keep children to school right. Right. for at least 18 years. And when you think about sort of the future, part of it is creating these financial hubs like Dubai uh, is a great uh, example of something that really came to the fore pretty quickly that really galvanizes people. It's a transportation hub, it's an economic hub, it's a financial hub. Do you have that same vision? Uh, truly, uh, the aspiration of the vision was to make Nairobi a financial sector. Kenya is not endowed with national resources right. or minerals. So we focused on people and said, what would people be good at? And we focused on services. So you find Kenya is the hub for uh, banking, insurance companies, telecommunication, health, and education. That's James Mwangi. He's the CEO of Equity Group Holdings, and I do find it fascinating. I've always loved the area of microfinance. Go back to uh, the Grameen Bank and uh, Muhammad Yunus. But, you know, James reminding us that, you know, a little bit of money gives somebody an individual a financial identity, brings them into the financial system, and it all starts small. Now they've got millions of customers. They've got billions on their balance sheet. So pretty remarkable. And he's doing more to change uh, Kenya and its future. Well, exactly. And that 
idea of changing the future has so much to do with the financial infrastructure mm-hmm. of Kenya to really positioning Nairobi as a new financial hub. That's been a limited opportunity there in Africa that could be changing largely owing to his work. So this week, of course, all about the Bloomberg 50. We caught up, Jason, with a lot of them at the red carpet on Monday. But we also caught up with a few you did specifically before the event. Well, that's exactly right. I headed across town and downtown over to IAC headquarters. Anyone who's driven on the West Side Highway has seen it. It's Mm -hmm. iconic. CEO Joey Levin agreed to spend some time with me, and I asked him to go all the way back to the beginning. He started as a banker. Yeah, I don't like to admit that. (laughs) That's true. Uh, I was. I was a banker, and actually, I learned a tremendous amount. I'm, I don't. I don't at all regret having done it. I didn't. It wasn't my favorite thing I ever did, but I learned a tremendous amount, and I think it opened up a lot of opportunities for me in terms of just how to think about things. And and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do out of college. And there was where I went to college. There was a lot of banks that did a lot of recruiting. Yeah. And they pulled me into uh, the sort of tech bubble, which sort of the peak of the tech bubble, which is when the the recruiting started it was the fall of 2000 when things were just about to crest over and by the time i started they had uh the bubble had burst and uh uh, they offered me thirty thousand dollars not to show up to the job but i decided to show up anyway yeah wow yeah it was uh it was a really interesting time and i think it's a great time to get started on a career because you could if i had started two years early i would have thought you could do nothing wrong uh and i started uh two years later and it was you could do nothing right, and you really had to grind out to figure out how to make things work. And uh, so I'm actually pretty, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But so I, I came to IC to do mergers and acquisitions, which is what I was doing in, in, as a banker. Uh, and really, Barry had told the market he wanted to spend $10 billion on acquisitions in the internet, and I thought that that is, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Right. And the this was 2003, and the internet was not popular. It was, people said, we, we, advertising doesn't work on the internet uh we we're not buying eyeballs anymore and and this thing's overdone and we thought no there's still a lot of opportunity here and uh we did we went and spent most of that money in travel but we we were uh very active in that and and a was very sort of core to the center of iac and so i got to know uh barry and the 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 vice chairman victor Kaufman very well who were all very involved in this process uh and uh and, and dara was there then who's who's now at Uber, and it was a great group of people who yeah. I learned a tremendous, tremendous amount from, and uh, started doing acquisitions, then started doing some finance stuff, and then started running my first business in 2009. And so, uh, go back to sort of joining, and I mean, at that point, Barry Diller is capital B, capital D, Barry Diller. I mean, yeah. like, he's, he's not an unknown uh, yeah. at that point. What were your first impressions of working for him? It was funny. People had all these things of okay, you're, you're going into your first meeting with Barry or you're going into a meeting with Barry, don't look at him. I don't look directly at him, but don't look away from him. <laughs> I was like, wait. There was all these like rules that people were trying to give me, and you go into the meeting, he's a, he's a regular person. He's very intense, and he's yeah. very sharp, and he gets to the point on everything very quickly and, and sort of intolerant of, of kind of nonsense or waste, but he's just a, a person in a meeting. And uh, the thing that I appreciated right away and still appreciate today very much is this culture of debate and discussion and challenging. And it's, it's, it's a lot of ways it's, it's hard to do as a leader because you say to everybody, you know, essentially everything I say, you should challenge. Everything I say, you should disagree with. Everything, and, and to make sure that, that you get to the right answer. And it is a definitively a better way of getting to the right answer, but it is a hard thing and something that Barry has, has always embraced and it doesn't work for everybody. You know, some people don't don't like that kind of culture, uh, but but I, it worked well for me and my personality and, and we ended up getting along, but I didn't really get to know Barry, even though I was in meetings with Barry, I probably sure. didn't get to know Barry until several years into being at IAC. Right. And did you anticipate when you got here that you would be here for, for this long? Because, you know, in today's day and age, like, it's a yeah. pretty long tenure at one place. It is. Uh, and did I anticipate it? No, I definitely did not anticipate it, but did I desire that yeah I, yeah I remember when i was interviewing for jobs out of investment banking i i 
very quickly knew I didn't want to be an investment banker, and I, I was learning a lot, and I was grateful for all the people that I was working with, and I just knew that that wasn't for me long term, so I started doing interviews, and one of the things that investment bankers frequently interview for is private equity or asset management right. or alternative assets, and I was, uh, so I was interviewing with a private, a, a great private equity fund, and they said, what do you want to, uh, you know, talk to us about what you want to do or where you want to be in a few years? I said, I'd, I'd like to be, you know, in a company, running a company, you know, driving a business, building a product. And they said, well, then what are you doing here? I said, good point. I, <laughs> and so I left, and, and I actually started talking to IC then. And I thought when I went there, I want to uh, be a part of building something. Yeah. And uh, you know, Barry is very much a builder, and IC is a company very much about building and building companies. And, uh, and so I got very lucky in that sense. And that's the first part of my interview with IAC CEO Joey Levin. Part two, that's coming up. We'll talk a little bit about how M&A, it's really been at the core of what he and Barry Diller have been doing at that company. So let's get to part two now of my interview with Joey Levin, the CEO of IAC. I headed down to see him at his office. He was in the midst of a bunch of board meetings because you get a real sense of the scope of what they're trying to do. It's everything from Tinder to Angie's List. How's that for uh, a couple ends of the spectrum? It's quite a range. And so you started by asking how M&A defines the culture at that company. We like the friction. Um, We like that things challenge themselves and each other. We frequently have multiple businesses in the same category right. competing with each other. Our view is we'd rather disrupt ourselves than have somebody disrupt us. And so so we're, we're often, if we have a thesis on a category, we want several teams going after it and several businesses going after it. And it's okay if they, they compete with each other and challenge each other in, in going after that um, end result. Because in many ways you can you can predict some components of the future. No one can predict the future, but you can say, "There's here's one way of doing something, and here's a better way of doing something. Five years from now or 10 years from now, are people going to be doing it the better way or the worse way? Well, they're definitely going to be doing it the better way, right? Yeah. You don't know whether you're going to get the right team that, that's going to figure out how to do the better way better than the other people <laughs> figuring out the better way. But you, you do know that that's what the future is going to look like. And so what we try and do is put a lot of bets against that future so that, that we can meaningfully participate in it. And uh, uh, that that sometimes leads to conflict. That sometimes leads to multiple bets in the same category right. or friction in your words. And, and that's something that's okay with us. Right. Yeah. It feels like it's baked in. It in, is. In some ways. It is. I, I was, um, we, uh, one of our board members, uh, Chelsea Clinton, we, we did a, a town hall with a bunch of employees. So I was, inter- I was in your seat interviewing her. And she said something which I thought was very interesting. It's, it's uh, a sort of revolution on something or, or a turn on something that, that we say internally, which is inertia is a very powerful and the most underrated force in business, both for good and for bad. And what Chelsea described, said from her observance as a board member is that we go out of our way to reject inertia, mm. you know, and again, for good and for bad. Don't, don't overestimate a tailwind. Uh, don't, don't believe too much that, that a tailwind is, is, is your own brilliance. Um, and uh, also don't be sort of intimidated by those, those headwinds and, and figure out how to, to push through that. And I think that, that is an important point yeah. in there. And so you know, going back to, to 2003 and sort of fast forwarding to the present, the internet is a very different place than, yeah. than it was in 2003. How do you define the internet? That's a big question, but how yeah. do you define the internet from a business perspective in 2019? Mind-blowing thing in the beginning of the internet, the f- sort of, I don't know if we'll call it the first phase, I'll call it the first phase for now of the internet was choice and breadth. You recall when Google came out, people, th- their big thing was one of you know 100 million results yes. when, when you do a search, and people's minds were blown by that appropriately. I mean, it was just uh, amazing that you could ask about some Nike shoes of some particular year and see 10 million results about that. That was the first and really interesting phase of the internet, and in a way, it's gone the, the complete opposite of that today. So today, it's actually about how do you narrow the choices, yes. right? How do you get to the one answer? Because now, always, 10 million, you can't really do anything with 10 million choices. You, 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 that, that's not that helpful as much as it is 
fascinating. It's not that helpful. You need to get to the answer, right? The one answer. And so now all the platforms are about not giving choice, but giving a solution. And we're, we're thinking about that in a lot of our businesses. Take Angie Home Services, for example, where we are matching consumers with home service professionals. Right now, we match you with, with several. And uh, to the extent someone wants that, we will continue to match them with several. But what we see is many consumers want to be matched with just the right one. Just, just tell me. I, right. We've grown up knowing platforms, knowing the Internet, and we know which brands we want to trust and which brands we don't want to trust. And if it's a brand we trust, just save me the trouble. Give me the answer. And that's what uh, we're trying to do now with Angie and with other of our businesses, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's harder in dating. I'd like to say that we could uh, find a person and we could say, okay, boom, here's a person for you. You <laughs> right guys will get end. married next week uh, <laughs> right. and, and off you go. I don't think that's uh, realistic ever in that category, but we can get better with our algorithms. We can get better at matching people as we learn more so that you don't have to go through you know, hundreds of conversations. Maybe you go through dozens of conversations right. or, or less than that and, and to get to find people that you might be compatible with. And when you think about sort of the Internet, again, broadly defined in 2019. It feels like if we went back to 2003 or certainly even in earlier, there was a lot of enthusiasm, you know, a lot of just excitement about what it could be. Today, it feels like there's more skepticism, you know, whether it's from regulators, whether it's from some of the companies themselves, whether it's from consumers. How do you read this moment where we are, you know, sort of broadly defined as this sort of tech clash, for lack of a better term? It's funny because it's the exact same thing that was what everyone was so excited about in the beginning, which was the 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 monopolies or the duopolies or the or the the power that was concentrated in the hands of a few, the internet came through and said, Nope, no yeah. more, we're gonna distribute this and anyone can do anything, anyone's empowered, you can start a business, you can reach consumers, you don't need to go through a uh, a, a privately owned platform to reach end users. You don't need an infinite amount of money to reach end users. You can open your shop on the internet and boom, you can reach the world. And that distribution was phenomenal and, and led to so much innovation and so much excitement. And that's why people were, were so excited. What happened is that power got reconcentrated again in a handful of hands. Uh, and we, those are the companies that are in the headlines and as part of that tech clash. And those companies do have enormous power. Today. Right. They're kingmakers of, of other companies, of individuals, of, of uh, politicians, for not necessarily by design, but sometimes by accident. Uh, that is a, you know, that, that goes back to that scary thing. And people don't like to be in that position where there's a handful of people with a very significant amount of power. It's a sort of more American and Democratic thing to see that right. uh, distributed, and I think people want to see that happen again. And what do you see as IAC's role in essentially combating that? Well, our biggest thing is having great independent products and having those products resonate with users. If we are, uh, if we can communicate a very compelling product experience in our category to a user, I believe we can win, and I believe we can we have historically, and I believe we can continue to defeat the the giants. Um, the giants com- compete with us sometimes over implicitly, sometimes explicitly, but they do compete with us. We also benefit hugely and have benefited hugely from their scale, uh, knowing how to use those platforms to to acquire audience, to to interact with with customers or potential customers, and those platforms have been hugely helpful to us in building our business, but also increasingly as they look for growth they are competing with us and that's something that we'll have to do and and you just win that on on a better product so help me understand one of your strategies seems to be keep me honest here sort of a like build build and spin or build and sell obviously that happened with with match or is in the process of happening with match and and i think you've said that you want things only to get so big you're not empire building it yeah. to some extent help me understand the thinking underneath that sure so I'll correct one small thing, which is build and sell is rarely something that we do. Uh, I, we don't think of a spin as a sale. Yeah, uh, fair. We, we have sold companies. That generally, when we're selling a company, it's just because we haven't figured out how to make it work for us. Um, it doesn't sort of fit, and we, 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 can't, we can't get it going in, in our ambition, and somebody else may be able to do it better. Uh, 
spinning is different. Spinning, it's our shareholders get it. We just give it to our shareholders, and they can continue to hold it forever. Yeah. And uh, when we look at our track record over time, we, we presume that somebody comes in, and from the moment they come in, they continue to hold everything forever. They can just hold it in separate pockets instead of all in, in, in one pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason that we do that is it, there, there's lots of micro reasons, and sometimes there's tactical reasons, but the, the main reason that we do it is we like the process of building. We like the process of starting over. And when you have something huge, it overshadows everything else. And Match is such a good business. It's doing so well right now. And, and, and it, it, investors care tremendously about it. And anything else we do is basically irrelevant relative to how many subscribers Tinder had in a quarter. And when you get to that level, at some point you say, okay, this thing has the ability to be off on its own. And if we, if we put that thing on its own, then we can focus again on the smaller things because uh, when we're focused on the smaller things, you, you put that kind of energy in it, there's nowhere to hide, and you've you got uh, you to make those work. And, right. and we like that process. That's Joey Levin, the CEO of IAC. Great interview. I love watching IAC because they are invested in so many different companies, some of them related, some of them not. But I just think it's fascinating. Well, And one of the things that really struck me about both reading Eric Schatzker's piece in the Bloomberg 50 issue and then my conversation with Joey was this notion that they sort of grow things only to a point and mm-hmm. then they spin them out. That's right. happening with Match. You wonder if it's going to happen with Angie's List as well. He sort of alluded to that a little bit. But this notion that they're not building a massive empire, they're really a startup machine. Right. It's all about unlocking value you eventually and then moving on to the next investment opportunity and that wraps up bloomberg business week's weekend podcast thanks so much for joining us i'm jason kelly and i'm carol masser be sure to tune into bloomberg business week radio live monday through friday it all starts at 2 p.m wall street time and if you can't catch us live get our daily podcast for the ride home at bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts and of course you can get this week's edition of the magazine that is on newsstands now we'll be back right here next week at the same time this is bloomberg